We're seeing in real time the power of being an outsider. Protest movements have always been launched by outgroups looking to change the culture of an in-group. Whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement we're seeing make a difference right now, or the marriage equality campaign sustained for years by groups like the Human Rights Coalition, change happens when someone from outside challenges the dominant narrative. So what motivates outsiders to press on in the face of adversity? Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and this week we are speaking with Olga Kazan, a journalist with The Atlantic and author of the brilliant new book, Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. Olga felt like an outsider for most of her life, growing up as a Jewish-Russian refugee living in West Texas. She felt weird. And her new book outlines exactly how weirdos and outcasts can change the world. We discuss how that applies to individuals, but also how it influences broad movements like what we're seeing today, and how an outsider idea can become an insider idea. So, let's get weird on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Olga Kazan, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. You are a writer for The Atlantic, and you have also written a book called Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. I think to start out, though, I'd like to talk about a piece that you just recently wrote in The Atlantic about looting. I think it's a conversation that a lot of people are having right now, certainly watching the news. A lot of people feel that it may be justified, that it may not be justified, but peaceful protests are. And you kind of took the time to really dive into the research and speak to sociologists and psychologists about kind of what motivates looting in the first place. Yeah. So I was really curious because I I had seen a lot of messages that were sort of like, I support the protesters, but the looting is unacceptable, which I think is a really normal response and understandable. So I kind of wanted to understand why looting happens so often during protests. And essentially what these sociologists told me is that the looters and the peaceful protesters aren't necessarily the same people. People come to a protest site for different reasons, but the people who come in order to march and be peaceful typically aren't the people who then randomly will start stealing Nikes as soon as a window is broken. It tends to be two different groups. And likewise, within the looting group, people there have different motivations. And it kind of depends on the protest and the context. There's some indications that it's almost sort of a backlash against capitalism, corporations, some of these entities that are seen as perpetuating racism. Some looters or, or people who support <laughs> looting have told sociologists things like, you know, this store, if I spend my money at this store now, this store won't step up and help me when I'm out of money. So I don't feel so bad for them if they get looted because they have insurance you know, they have other ways of getting money, but I don't have another way of getting an income. So to them, it seems almost like you're taking from this corporation that isn't suffering that much while your community has suffered a lot. There's also kind of a tendency to try to get attention for your cause through looting. So if you feel like people aren't paying attention, if you feel like you're not being heard, one way to draw a big crowd and a lot of media attention is to burn something down or to cause a big havoc which does tend to draw, you know, news cameras and and a lot of media attention. So you saw that a little bit in Baltimore with the burning of the CBS after the Freddie Gray riots. The other kind of element of this is sort of a feeling of empowerment is that people feel like they've been ground down for so long. They don't have access to these possessions and belongings. And this is their chance to kind of rebalance the scales 
and to get what's theirs in a way that will have minimal repercussions for them. Again, I'm not saying that you should agree with these rationales, but this is sort of what sociologists have found. And then finally, you have people who just really have no connection to the cause, really have no motivation other than wanting to cause trouble, wanting to break windows and wanting to take things and seizing the opportunity to do so because the cops are distracted elsewhere. Well, and I guess that's the group that I kind of want to expand out a little bit because we've seen from a lot of political leaders, you know, here in Alabama, but also in New York and in Minneapolis. And a lot of people have attributed this to, quote unquote, outside agitators. I mean, that's something going back way to the civil rights movement that it's always kind of been a, you know, it's outside troublemakers coming in. When you kind of drill down into some of the arrests, it doesn't necessarily seem that that's the case. However, as you just kind of outlined, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are part of the protest movement themselves. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on what you mean by outside agitators. Do you mean like someone from outside the neighborhood? Maybe. Yeah, it's possible that, you know, the people who are looting on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan probably don't live on Fifth Avenue. Like that just happens to be where all the nice stores are. You know, if you just simply mean someone who's not part of the formal protest, these are really informal protests. They kind of been a little bit ad hoc. People have different messages. People have different motivations for being there. They all are around the central problem of racism and police violence, but people have different desires for what they want to come out of the protests. So it's not like these people are inside and these people are outside. There's just a bunch of people protesting. And then there are some people who are looting. I think the outside agitator, you know, it kind of suggests that, oh, well, real like Alabamans would never do right. this, you know, or something. Well, and it gets tossed around with like Antifa and, and other things like that. Yeah. I mean, there have been some hosts by those types of groups like Antifa and, and white nationalist groups that have been promoting violence, but it's not clear how much of the looting has actually been related to Antifa and to these kind of outside agitator groups. And that's in general, just a trope that is often used to kind of reduce the legitimacy of the protests in general. So I would avoid using the outside agitator kind of language, I guess. Yes, I think that's right. That's certainly how it was used in the 50s and 60s in Alabama. You know, it's interesting because your book was published at the beginning of April. And in a lot of ways, what you explore in terms of psychology and sociology speaks to a lot of what we're seeing in this particular moment in time in groups versus out groups. And there's one part in particular that you discussed that I really like where as people kind of feel rejected and stressed, their level of creative problem solving increases. And so I think, you know, hopefully we will see some creative problem solving in the wake of this nationally. To back up, let's talk about why you wrote the book in the first place, your personal story that you tell throughout the book. You grew up in Texas, but you are a Jewish refugee from Russia. Is that right? Yeah, so I I have this unusual background. I grew up in Midland, Texas. I am a Russian Jew. And It was a really unusual experience that kind of, and even though it's over now, I live in DC and there are other Russian Jews here and I don't feel so weird anymore. It did kind of affect my life for a really long time. And I still feel a lot of social anxiety. I feel like I don't really quite fit into any particular group. Most of my Texas friends are really different from most of my DC friends and have that's become more kind of pronounced as the country has become more polarized. So yeah, I've always kind of felt like I'm sort of like this outsider kind of looking in. And I wanted to explore that phenomenon more and talk to other people who feel like they don't quite fit into any social circle or feel like they're kind of the only ones in their environment doing whatever it is they're doing or of their gender, of their race, of their 
ethnicity. And I kind of wanted to look at like what that's like and why that's so hard and also why it can be so empowering. Yeah. And not everybody that you spoke to for the book was in Texas or was in the South, but it certainly, you know, speaking to liberal professors in a small Texas town. And then at one point you were speaking with a Californian expat who was helping other Californians migrate to Texas and find a place where they would fit in, which was interesting. You talk about tight societies. Can you kind of give us a working definition of what a a tight society is? Yeah, a tight society is where there are a lot of rules and norms for how to act. This is like when Trump refers to like law and order, he's kind of hearkening to elements of a tight society that are values of a tight society. So that means people are more in step with one another. People kind of do a similar thing and kind of have similar beliefs. And deviation from that is not really welcomed or appreciated. So like at the very extreme end of a tight society might be like the Amish, where people actually all dress exactly the same. Everyone has basically the same kind of life. You all have basically the same job. You basically do the same thing at a given age that everyone around you does. There's not a whole lot of variation. I was talking to someone else who wanted an example of a loose society, which is like the opposite of that. So, and they said Burning Man, which I think is like a pretty good one, you know, so it's basically like your society where anything goes, I know that there are rules in Burning Man, but you know, whatever, you can like be naked, you can do drugs, you can, you know, have your art installation. It's just very loosey-goosey about the norms of the place. And so one reason I looked at Texas, first, it just so happened that a lot of the characters that I found lived in Texas. So it just worked out that way. But Texas is, you know, in a ranking of states, Texas is one of the tighter states. It has more kind of a, of a value of respect for authority, of doing kind of a traditional values, traditional mores. And then you have states like Hawaii, which is a lot more loose and a lot more choose your own adventure. (laughs) And so one reason why I looked at Texas is because people who are different might kind of have a few more struggles to fit in in a place that is tighter. Yeah. And you discuss about how we have self- segregated, for lack of a better term, between like liberals living in cities and conservatives living in rural parts of the country or suburbs, smaller towns. And, you know, some of that is natural in-group selection, I guess. It does seem to be that it is speeding up as things get more and more heated and as the internet makes it easier to find like-minded individuals. Towards the end of the book, you discuss having the choice between assimilating or finding like-minded individuals, and, and you kind of present both as rational choices and ethical choices. You have done a little bit of both, I guess. You know, you, you have lived in Texas with people who, you, who describe as being very different from you, and then also in D.C. and California. This particular moment, you know, as we look at like the Black Lives Matter movement over the last decade and how they have brought it seems like more and more white people into the fold in terms of being on that side. How do movements that choose the solidarity approach rather than assimilation kind of win over public argument? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and not one that I specifically addressed in my book, but I'm happy to riff on it in a (laughs) reform way and hopefully not get myself in too much trouble. One thing is that like norms do change, right? So I think the most poignant example of norms changing that I discuss a little bit in my in my book is of gay marriage. So gay marriage went from being completely unacceptable, actually, even when I was like a teenager, so a couple decades ago, to being the law of the land to where if you don't support gay marriage, you probably have like some explaining to do. Like you probably have to justify it in some way rather than having that be just like 
a given, right? I would say that with Black Lives Matter, something similar is happening where the movement has just been able to recruit more and more white allies and more and more white people are now saying things like Black Lives Matter. Fewer people, I feel like, are saying all lives matter this time around as compared to, you know, 2014 or the 2015 protests. I feel like fewer people are saying things like Blue Lives Matter. I haven't studied the dynamics of Black Lives Matter specifically, but I think some of their messaging to the white community has been really powerful. They've done a really good job of not just saying Black Lives Matter. They've, they've like explained that further. There's been a lot of really good internet messaging and really good and poignant coverage of systemic racism and kind of how white people perpetuate it. And I think, honestly, they've won over a lot of a lot of people who were sort of like, well, all lives matter, really, you know, <laughs> and, and who are now right. more willing to kind of throw their full weight behind this allyship for Black Lives Matter. And I think they've done that, honestly, without really diluting their message or making it um, kind of less powerful or less without making it more like mild. I would say that within that, at the same time, there's still this problem that remains, which is that I was reading today that something like between 40% and 75% of white people have no black friends or friends of another race, depending on which poll you look at. Every time we have one of these protest movements, I feel like there's more progress made toward people kind of getting onto the same page about Black Lives Matter. I still think there's just such a long way to go. I think there's still a lot of white people, frankly, who have, you know, as I write in my book, kind of surrounded themselves with people who are exactly like them, who don't have different racial or ethnic backgrounds, who don't have different struggles that they can describe to them. And often that's kind of the first step in people really understanding struggle and really understanding where someone else is coming from is of them just saying, you know, hey, like I've had this really negative experience because of my race. This is why this movement's really important to me. Would you consider, you know, supporting it in whatever way you can? I think that's harder to do if you don't have a existing friendship of any kind. So that's kind of what worries me about those statistics. Coming up after the break, Olga Kazan and I discuss the steps the majority should take to learn about minority groups without forcing them to do all of our emotional labor. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that kind of role that a lot of, <laughs> I think a lot of Black people are being kind of unwittingly thrown into. It's like, oh, you're the one Black person I know. I'm going to reach out to you and ask you to explain, you know, decades of trauma to me. In your book, you speak with a trans activist in 
Texas, a, a former mayoral candidate who has kind of embraced the role of explaining the trans community to her neighbors there. And the way she frames it is very poignant is that if she explains it, that means that maybe some other trans person may not have to explain it. What is the role of the in-group trying to better understand out-groups versus the out-group having to explain to the in-group? We were looking today and a lot of the books that have been popping up on these reading lists uh, about you know race and injustice in America seem to be rapidly selling out. It does seem like that people are taking that as a as an option. But as you were just talking about, you know, 40 to 75 percent of white people in America not having black friends certainly seems to put a large amount of work on a small amount of black people. Right. Like that one black friend is is doing a lot of emotional labor right now. So I have to say that opinions on how much explaining or educating individual people who are in marginalized communities have to do, that is a topic of huge debate. And it's generally seen among the more progressive activists that that's not the role of marginalized groups. So that they, you know, I quote Audre Lorde in the book, you know, talking about how she says, whenever the need for some pretense of communication arises, those who profit from our oppression call upon us to share our knowledge with them. And she says this kind of disdainfully, that she's tired of having to explain why this is a problem, why racism is a problem. At the same time, I talked to Jess Herbst, as you mentioned, who was, I think, cautiously embracing this explainer role where she was like, you know, I realize that people are going to ask me questions and I'm just going to answer them. And I'm going to be, I think she called herself like the map in the mall where everyone goes to like figure out where Sears is. (laughs) (laughs) And except for, you know, but I don't think everyone wants to be the map in the mall. (laughs) And like, I think some people can't handle that. I don't know if white people are genuinely interested in being allies and learning more about Racism, I think, you know, you could start with books. There are great books out there. You could start with kind of reading up on everything that's been written and kind of trying to get to a point where you feel like the bulk of your questions or the most basic questions have been answered. And then just, you know, maybe just talk to people of other races about how they feel and kind of try to be there for them and be supportive as opposed to, you know, wanting support yourself and wanting advice or wanting to feel better about your own position in society. I mean, that's kind of my advice, but again, I'm, I'm also white, so I, I right. don't really <laughs> yeah. know. We are not in, advising you to text every black person, you know, and ask how they are feeling that might uh, <laughs> annoy them. Yeah. So I would recommend reading those books that are selling out well. So a lot of people have done that work already. In the book, you use yourself as an example when you are interviewing for a master's program at USC for a scholarship there and, you know, you're stressed out and hadn't been sleeping very well and kind of go into this gauntlet of all-day interviews. And, you know, you talk about your back being against the wall and that sort of creating a better environment for you in some ways, a more creative environment for that particular moment. What is that phenomenon and does it apply like beyond the level of the individual? Yeah. So this is interesting study that I found that prompted a lot of the more positive parts of the book, which is that it is horrible to be rejected and to be an outsider and to feel like you have no friends. But in that sense of rejection, you can also find a lot of creativity. So several studies have found that when people feel like they don't belong with the group, that they're just outsiders, like they're never going to be accepted, they actually can come up with a lot more creative solutions to problems. And I think the way one researcher put it to me is like, you already see that your life is like breaking all these rules. So you are like, what other rules can be broken? Like, what else can I dream up that doesn't really fit with what everyone else is thinking? So that was just one example for me of this 
kind of phenomenon at work where I had been actually dumped and laid off right before. <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot about that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, like, you know, I mean, my overriding feeling was like, nobody wants me. Like, you know, my boyfriend yeah. doesn't want me and my job doesn't want me. And I was like, I don't know. I remember the, there's this, like this scene in this, that movie with Sandra Bullock where she's in space. I forget what it's called. Gravity. Gravity. Exactly. Yeah. And she like throws things to try to get through space back to her spaceship. And that's sort of how I felt in that time. It's like, I have to come up with all the creative solutions to like get to the spaceship because I just am like stuck in space right now. <laughs> and I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling of like, you know, it's a trope, but like the necessity can often breed creativity and is the mother of invention. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people can relate to that when you feel like you don't have other options and that you're kind of a, like you said, your back is pressed against the wall. That's when your creativity really flourishes. And also when groups have a lot of people who disagree with one another, so they're less kind of group thinky, they also tend to come up with more creative and better solutions than when everyone is sort of all agreeing with each other when there's like a high degree of like top-down direction. So it's just like another reason why we should seek out diverse voices to be part of groups. But also if you feel like you yourself are the diverse voice, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can it can lead to some of your, your greatest bursts of insight. Yeah, I mean, the kind of overarching message of the book seems to be embracing the idea of being weird. And and you kind of walk through a history of definitions of weird going all the way back, at least to Shakespeare and the Weird Sisters. Let's talk a little bit more about your time in Texas, both growing up, but then also revisiting it as an adult for this book. You know, what brought your family from Russia to Texas, of all places, and what it was like growing up there? Most Russian immigrants in the U.S. are Jewish. There was a mass exodus of Jews from Russia in the late 80s, which is when my family came over. And we were kind of resettled by this refugee resettlement agency in areas with a lot of other Jews because they thought it would be more comfortable for us that way. But we actually ended up moving to Texas because my parents really struggled to get jobs that were kind of equivalent to their level of education. So my mom was working at McDonald's. My dad was kind of working at this really low level job at this small business. And the small business was like, we're moving to Texas. Do you want to come with us to my dad? And my dad was like, yes, but you have to hire my wife as an accountant because that's what she was, was trained as. And they were like, okay, fine. (laughs) So they figured, you know, this is a chance for you to get hired as an accountant, this is a chance for you to do your job that you're trained for. We'll save up some money. West Texas is very inexpensive to live in. We were living in LA and it was really tough for my parents. And, you know, if we don't like it, we'll leave. So they kind of made this gamble that it was going to have more benefits than be difficult. And I think like on the whole, it did have a lot of benefits. Like it was financially much more savvy of them to move to Midland. I think socially, though, that is where my family really struggled, especially my parents. And I think to a certain extent, me, just because kids are very aware of difference and very like perceptive of anyone who's unusual. And so I had a pretty rough time in school and my parents honestly never really integrated. Like they completely actually segregated themselves in a way they only talk to each other and they only watch Russian TV and they only eat at home, they'd actually don't go to restaurants. Actually, this coronavirus thing was not a big problem for them because they actually already never left the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't know. So for us, we were sort of like the extreme end of people who don't really try to not be weird. (laughs) And then you moved to the suburbs of Dallas. 
later. Is that right? Did things change for you when you moved there? Not really. I still didn't really make a lot of friends and it was still pretty difficult. We were still pretty different from everyone else. I was pretty eager to get out. I will say one thing that kind of resurfaced for me. So I went back to the town where I went to high school, which is called McKinney, to do some reporting because that was the place where they had that pool party where the cop tackled the girl, that famous viral video. So I went back to do some additional reporting on that and sort of how that affected the town a few years after it had happened. So it would have been like 2018. It was really tough. Like I noticed that There was just a lot of mistrust of the media. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I spent like days and days just walking around these subdivisions and like getting the door slammed in my face. Really the only reason I got access was because I told people I went to high school in McKinney. (laughs) They pretty clearly like didn't really believe me. People called me fake news. It was really hard. And it was really a reminder of like some of the kind of outsider feelings that had always been percolating for me when I lived there. Well, and it's interesting because to use parlance of the book, that would be representative of a tight society, right? But then you also kind of describe your mom's feelings of Texas towards the end of the book and kind of this gregariousness of the town, you know, people taking her to a Mexican restaurant the day that they had heard she had never had Mexican food. And you describe being kind of surprised that she liked that community as much as she did. It's a similar situation to Jess, feeling accepted by the community, but then as she runs for mayor, possibly realizing that they don't accept her quite as much as they might have otherwise. I think that's probably similar to a lot of towns throughout the South. You know, this outgoing nicety concern, asking people at the pharmacy, you know, about their entire lives while not necessarily embracing people who deviate too far outside of the norms. I think that kind of sums it up well. My mom really liked the friendliness of West Texas in particular. The suburbs of Dallas are not very like this just because I don't know. I think suburbs everywhere are kind of more similar to each other than different, but you know what suburbs are. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but Midland is kind of this town. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's close to Odessa, which is where Friday Night Lights was set. And that's really the only thing that's close to it. So kind of for entertainment, people would just invite each other over, have barbecues. So you kind of did have this feeling of like, I'm in a community. It might not be the most natural community for me, but it's I feel like aggressively befriended. <laughs> and like, you know, that can be really comforting. Like even if, you know, nobody accepted that my parents weren't Christian, that was very not cool. And people made it known. And it was pretty, you know, consistent that people would tell me you really need to get your parents on board with Christianity. But I think that for my mom, just the feeling of like, well, at least they're being nice to me, you know, at least they're trying, they're making an effort. That was like enough to like make her really like it. And maybe it's a compromise she was willing to make as a weirdo is like, you don't have to fully agree with me on on all my lifestyle choices and, and all my beliefs. But like, as long as you make an effort and like, aren't basically nice, like I <laughs> will appreciate your efforts. That's not going to be enough for everyone. <laughs> what is weird to you? Like, I mean, you describe it as being an outsider, but like, maybe I'm just overthinking things. But it seems like as Instagram and TikTok and, and social media has arisen, there's been a lot of performative weirdness maybe that like people are like look at this weird thing that I'm doing that's exactly the same as everybody else in their timeline so like what stands out like what does being weird really mean yeah so that's something I really struggled with and when I first explained this idea to people they were like oh so it's gonna be people who like ride tricycles or whatever you know like people who wear red wigs and it's not really that kind of performative weirdness that I'm exploring or like 
performative kind of like quirkiness. It's actually not about quirkiness at all. What I found about those communities where people have like one thing that they do, they tend to find each other and that becomes not weird anymore. So like people who run Tough Mudders or whatever, like that could be seen as weird, but they tend to do it together and it's like embraced in their community. I'm looking more at people who are different because they are doing something different or they have a completely different background than other people or they sort of don't look like or act like anyone else around them. So I kind of wanted to look more at people who don't blend in rather than people who are choosing to do something interesting. (laughs) Right. Quirky versus weird. That makes sense. I feel like at any given moment in time, we could talk about a lot of phenomenal reporting you've done throughout your career to keep it kind of the relevant last few months. Who knows by the time this airs, if we'll be backed up talking about the pandemic again. I don't know. (laughs) You talked about at one point kind of this creation of in-groups versus out-groups. And it seemed like a little bit of that happened, or maybe a lot of it happened in our initial response to coronavirus, you know, the the labeling of it as China flu and Wuhan flu and things like that. At one point, we saw rumors floating around on social media that black people couldn't get it. And then it was, oh, no, black people are getting it disproportionately. And it's because of like something inherent in black people, which obviously is, is not the case. And so like, this kind of creation of mythology in order to preserve the in-group and make the out-group kind of the weird virus bringer. That is not the conversation that is happening right now because it's been obviously overshadowed by the protests. Does that hinder our ability to respond to things like pandemics, like by breaking it down into kind of an us versus them response? Yeah. So because I'm from Texas, some of my friends share Tucker Carlson clips on Facebook. He actually is still calling it the Wuhan coronavirus. Of course. So, I mean, this has not gone away. This sense of like, it's from somewhere else. I do talk about this in my book about how we tend to associate foreigners with diseases and keep them at a distance because our body is like trying to keep from getting those diseases, perhaps understandably, but still it makes us kind of weirdly racist in this subconscious way. So you're definitely seeing that with coronavirus. I think that I haven't seen any good research on this. I do wonder if this sense that like there were those reports in like January of mysterious pneumonia sweeping China. And I do feel like a lot of people were complicit about that because it was like so far away and like (laughs) this probably won't affect us. And, you know, is it just among Chinese people? Or I do wonder if we kind of were asleep at the wheel a little bit and how much of that was just because it seemed to be affecting people other than us. I wonder that a lot about a lot of diseases, actually, like malaria is a huge killer, but it mostly affects people in Africa. So I wonder if people don't like see themselves in the victims of some of these illnesses. And so that doesn't bother them that much. I don't know. I think there's definitely something there, but I haven't seen any research exactly quantifying that. So I don't know whether that played into our delayed response. And there's also like the sense of like, oh, well, it's because they eat bats or, or something like that, even though, you know, I've seen politicians say that in Alabama where, I mean, now I'm playing into our own stereotypes where people do eat squirrel. I mean, people eat, you know, people eat things that would otherwise be considered outside of the norm, you know, in, in other parts of the country. So it's interesting the the racist steps that we take in order to to make it sound like the, the virus is foreign, even the Spanish flu, which started here. Yes. There's been a lot of stuff of like immigrants bringing leprosy across the border which like was a whole media panic in 2005 that ended up being not true. Like it just wasn't true. <laughs> oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> and then I think just today uh, the president said he's blocking all 
flights from China or Chinese companies to the United States. So each step seems to be designed to make the virus something foreign as opposed to something that's present here. In the midst of all of this, several of your colleagues there at the Atlantic have lost their jobs. That on top of a global pandemic and now, you know, protest movements where a lot of reporters are being attacked. How has that affected you and your colleagues? You know, is it tough to kind of keep up putting out good work every day with sort of the sense of maybe the shoe is going to drop? You all done all the right things. I think, what, 90,000 new subscribers since March? <laughs> Please go subscribe to The Atlantic if you haven't already. You know, I, I think that y'all, as much as anybody, have done some of the best national coverage of the pandemic. So first of all, thank you for that. And then, of course, of racial inequity over the last decade, at least, I mean, really going back to your founding. I know for me, a lot of my initial understanding goes back to Ta-Nehisi Coates' case for reparations that was first published in The Atlantic. So thank you for doing what you do. And also, how has this affected you and your colleagues? Yeah, I mean, it is a really tough time for journalists right now, not just at The Atlantic, but so many journalists have lost their jobs. And it's actually really disheartening both to see journalists attacked during the protests. I'm not out, but the people who are out reporting on it aren't there in support of any one side. They're there just to tell the story. And it's really upsetting to see police and other forces trying to stop us from telling the story. That's how things change as people see the truth and they hopefully it affects what they think. So to me, that seems like the first step and it should be allowed. The other frustrating thing was that the president tweeted that we are boring and nasty and deserve to have layoffs. That's also upsetting to see the president of the United States rejoicing that my friends lost their job. But no one got into this because it's stable or because it's high paying. I think not just at the Atlantic, but Elsewhere, journalists tend to be kind of the people who run toward the fire when everyone else is running away from it. And, you know, it's been honestly really gratifying to have something to do and stories to tell, things to investigate, you know, people to call whose voices to highlight. I would prefer to be really busy doing journalism than to be, you know, sitting at home and worrying. So, I mean, to me, I'm just grateful I still have a job and I'm still able to to do the work. But I know that a lot of my colleagues at The Atlantic and elsewhere would, would also like to be doing the work. And unfortunately, it's just a really brutal time. Certainly. You also released a book during this very brutal time. I imagine that the book release process during a pandemic is very different than, than it typically would be. Had you lined up kind of speaking tours and engagements around the country that you had to cancel? Yeah, I did line up talks at different venues that had to be canceled. Some of them were able to be moved virtually. So I'm really grateful for people figuring out how to do a book talk virtually. <laughs> I mean, I would definitely have chosen to release this and not during a pandemic. <laughs> but you know, we haven't had a lot of like very smooth, no news times since nope. 2016. So maybe this is as good a time as any. That's true. Yeah, people are at home, they need books to read. Well, thank you so much for your time. Everybody, please go out and buy Weird. It's very good. Thank you, Olga. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our time, folks. Thanks so much to Oka Kazan for taking time out of a crazy news cycle to speak with us. You can buy her book, Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World, wherever you get your books, and you can support her work at The Atlantic. I want to take a brief moment to talk to you about what's going on in the world. Some of you may be taking steps that do feel a little weird to you, whether it's participating in a protest for the first time, confronting your family about issues you've never talked about, or even something as simple as making a social media post. For a lot of us, this might be our very first step, and thank you for taking it. I know it's not always easy, but it can't be our only step. Remember, we're joining a long, ongoing march toward equality. So keep putting in the work and taking those steps and adding your energy. Take time to listen, to read, 
and to learn from those who have been doing the work for years. And to speak out however you can. Don't be afraid to be weird. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like our show, please consider subscribing, sharing with your friends, and giving us a five-star review. And then go follow Reckon on all of our social channels. And until next time, stay weird, y'all.